Hi everyone, welcome to Refine and Grow with Justin and Lindsay. My name is Lindsay Allen. And my name is Justin Euler, and this is your podcast for proven strategies on navigating and managing work life. So this episode, we are going to deep dive into a chapter titled, Don't Avoid Failure, Minimize Its Impact. And this advice really was the beginning of a lot of learning about failure, about risks and mitigations, about ambiguity. And it came from Justin. And so Justin, I think that we've touched on this story in the past. And I think we were talking specifically about navigating ambiguity. But the way the story goes is that I was on a project doing something I had never done before. You were my manager. And the client who I was project manager for, but she was really the strategist, the visionary of the project, didn't have a lot of time for me. And I was in this position where I felt like, well, I need to wait for this strategist, the visionary, to tell me what we're going to do and how. And I had some context. I knew the goal we wanted to achieve. It was launching a new product. And we were specifically in charge of the marketing, the internal to this company. It's a Fortune 100 company party that they throw for their customer service reps on the day that the product launches. And I hadn't done anything yet. And you asked me just because you were my manager, we were in a one-on-one meeting. You were saying, you know, how are you making forward progress? What are you doing? And because I thought I was dependent upon my client before I could do anything, I was saying, oh, I'm learning about the company. I'm studying their internal tools. I'm learning about their offices. I'm meeting with other consultants who are staffed here to get their advice. So I was filling up my time and in ways helping my education and helping my client because I was learning from other people about their company and culture, but I wasn't actually doing anything that was moving the project forward. And so you repeated the question after I said everything I was doing, you know, like, why are you unable to make forward progress? And I was just silent because I didn't know the answer. And so you filled in the silence for me. You probably counted to seven. Okay. (laughs) If you're not making progress because you're afraid of failure, let me take the fear away by telling you, you will fail. Everybody fails at some point in their career, but it's not about avoiding it altogether. It's about managing and minimizing the impact of the failures that you do have in the workplace. And so I want to hear your thoughts on that advice, failure in general, how you view it, and also how you manage the impact of it. Yeah. I don't think anyone really likes to fail, but I also believe that doing nothing is its own sort of failure. (laughs) We can be so afraid of stepping forward that we do nothing. And as an infantry officer, one of the things that was impressed into us very early on was no decision is a bad decision. So make a decision because once you make a decision and you commit to a course of action, you can always adjust. But if you do nothing, you can't adjust to nothing. I suppose you could just act, but then that would be making a decision. So commit to action, commit to a decision. Don't do it in a knee-jerk fashion or without thought, but make a decision. We can paralyze ourselves paralysis by analysis because we start to think through all the possible ways that something won't work. Now, I do think there are situations that are high risk and the impacts to that risk could be catastrophic. But rarely in the consulting world, like we're not climbing mountains, 
We're not skiing down slopes that are potentially avalanche risk. We're not river crossing with a platoon of infantrymen. We're in the business world. So the chances of something being catastrophic, fatal, are low to nil. So we have to sometimes remember what context we're in and think thoughtfully about what the consequences of a decision are, but don't allow it to stop us from moving forward. There's, you know, how severe is the consequence? Well, it could be catastrophic at worst. But what's the likelihood of a catastrophic occurrence taking place? Well, it might be fairly low to moderate, in which case, hey, take that risk. So I think we have to learn how to, one, assess the context that we're in, like what's the worst thing that can happen? Two, we need to do a quick down and dirty kind of risk assessment. What's the likelihood of failure? How bad are the consequences? And what's the likelihood of those consequences actually taking place? And that can allow you to do a little bit of course of action analysis. Like, do I want to go left or do I want to go right? Or do I just go down the middle? But I think that can allow you to do some quick analysis. Say, hey, I'm in a fairly safe environment. No one's going to die. We're not going to lose millions of dollars based upon, or billions of dollars based upon this decision. The likelihood of the worst case scenario actually taking place are pretty low. So let's just jump in and give it a go. Take a stab, see what happens. And I know that might sound a little flippant, but I think when I say like, let's give it a go, I'm really speaking to like, let's just try it. Let's be okay with it not being perfect. I think more often than not, people are less concerned about a catastrophic outcome and they're more concerned about a reputation hit. They're more concerned about looking stupid or incompetent. They're more concerned with how they compare to the person next to them than they really are about the true consequences of a poor decision particularly in a business environment, particularly at the levels in which we operate. I'm working on a program team right now. It's an internal effort, massive transformation, process, culture, tool set, how we orient to the customer. It's massive change. We have the chief strategy officer of our parent company deeply engaged in the project. And his perspective is like, you don't accomplish big audacious things to say nothing of just little things by not taking a step forward and giving it a go and being comfortable with failure. Avoidance of risk, avoidance of failure is the enemy of the good. I mean, heck, I wouldn't be in a 23-year relationship, well, 25-year relationship with my wife if I didn't take a risk, put myself out there. I wouldn't have jumped from the military to the civilian sector and gone into consulting with this. I didn't even know what the heck change management was when I first stepped in. Sometimes the willingness and the ability to take risk is where we see not only the greatest adventures, but the greatest gains in our both our personal development, but in the development of others and the kind of the advancement of the work that we're trying to do. So some listeners may not be management consultants or have a background in project management, but at a tactical level, there is a tool, a document, you know, a risk register. It's typically an Excel spreadsheet that says, you know, what the risk is, what the mitigation is. But what I also learned about managing and minimizing impacts of failure was that in that tool, you can add a column where you rank either high, medium, low, the likelihood of the risk occurring, their high, medium, low, the impact level that it will have based on the number of people it will impact, you know, kind of the size across the organization of the risk and how badly it will impact their ability to do their job. So I thought that that was a great call out at a tactical level. But then at a broader level, the analogy that came to mind as you were talking about risk is when I first you know, engaged with a financial advisor for the first time. And we had to talk about my risk tolerance level. 
what percent of risk was I willing to take with the money that I was investing? And I immediately was like 1%. I don't want my money going anywhere. (laughs) 1% my risk tolerance level. And I remember him saying, okay, well then don't expect a high return. If you're not open to a lot of risk, don't expect a high return. And that's what I heard you saying. You, I think, have a very high risk tolerance. And I was always fascinated working alongside you, how you got comfortable with that. Part of it is learning how to navigate ambiguity. So I want to hear your thoughts on how do you develop high risk tolerance? You know, what motivates you to do that and take chances? And also kind of sharpening your skill set in terms of being able to navigate ambiguity help you with having a higher risk tolerance. Yeah, well, I mean, ambiguity is going to happen. You can't avoid it, especially if you're asked to step into something new, not just as a management consultant, but like I said, I'm 17 years into my career working at the executive level, and I was asked to step into this big initiative, and every member of the team is like a senior director or above. So it's senior directors, VPs, SVPs. In a way, we all feel like we're fresh out of grad school and starting for the first time because we're stepping to a place where we've not all worked together. It's a high risk project. A lot of what we're trying to do has never been done before internally or externally. So there's not a lot of case studies to look at. And so it's kind of walking up a mountain in a whiteout a bit. You know, mountaineering, when you're trying to mark the route up and you want to come down the same route and prior to GPS technology, you need these wands with brightly colored flags. And the wands are usually made out of a flexible material like bamboo. You'd set your wand and then you'd go about a rope length, maybe less, and then you'd set another wand, set another wand. And then theoretically, when you're coming back down that route, you could follow your wands. And that's a great example for where we find ourselves periodically throughout our career. We're on a snowfield. We're kind of navigating our route up to the summit. And we're not quite sure we're taking the right route up or coming back down and we got to mark the route. So it's going to happen. And the only way you can navigate in that kind of environment is to take risk because there is no right answer. There is no prescribed step. Another analogy I've heard is of, forgot the country in Africa, but they have trackers that track lions. And they'll often talk about how elusive it is to track a lion. And the guidance that one tracker provided to a hunter was you just follow the next best track. And that's how you navigate yourself through ambiguity. But you've got to be willing to step forward and follow the track. And that implies risk because you don't know where that line is. You don't know where that best possible route sits. So you have to be willing to step forward. And that's the only way you can navigate through ambiguity. If you just stop and do nothing, you will fail. It's guaranteed. You will absolutely fail. So the next best option or the better option is to step forward and try to find the next best track. And you take that one wand, one footprint at a time until you work your way through and clarity starts to develop. Either the fog lifts or the brush gets a little less dense and you start piecing things together and start putting together a better picture. So navigating through ambiguity and risk are like part and parcel. You will not navigate through risk and therefore navigate through ambiguity without accepting risk or you'll just fail, period. And the risk register from a pragmatic perspective in the business world is something that's discipline that can be easily forgotten and easily neglected. But I think it allows you to think through, you know, the magnitude, the severity, as well as, okay, how do I mitigate this? How do I mitigate this risk? Well, you know, just like with the example of climbing up a mountain in poor weather without the benefit of like a GPS where you can set a waypoint, your mitigation strategy is to set a wand. And you set that wand, you know, at a pretty set distance and pattern so that you can find your way back down again. 
I hope that's helpful, but that's how I view it. I mean, if you don't take a risk and you just stall, you're going to fail. It's guaranteed. If you're at least willing to take a mitigatable risk, you actually now have created an opportunity for success. Right. Do you think it's accurate to say one of the key ways to increase your risk tolerance is to learn how to navigate ambiguity? Yeah. And I've never taken a formal class on how to navigate it or mitigate it. Just learning how to think rather than thinking in terms of risk avoidance, think in terms of risk mitigation. And risk mitigation accepts that there's likely going to be risk, but it may not become a stalling issue. You figure out how to mitigate or lessen the impact or severity of that risk or negate it altogether, or you accept the risk. You embrace it because the impact of the risk actually taking place is non-material. And I think the more you have a tool set for managing risk and are taught how to leverage that tool set, the more you are willing to step into risk and kind of a live fire exercise how to mitigate the risk, the more tuned you become in those safe risk environments to make bigger bets and take bigger risks. So I think it's just an issue of stepping in and practicing and knowing that there are active tool sets, a risk mitigation log, and frankly, a very simple risk matrix that you can complete to identify what's the likelihood and what's the severity of a risk taking place, and then just work in it. Yeah. And that other aspect of navigating ambiguity for Justin, Shanae, and I, as management consultants and as change managers, we also had to learn how to not only navigate ambiguity ourselves, but lead others through it. And from a tactical perspective, one of the things I talk about in the book, how did I break down ambiguity, is I always tried to answer the questions of who, what, where, why, when, and how. I needed those answers to what we were doing, and I could then use that information, clarify it to help guide others as well, if I could get them aligned to that. But one of the experiences I talk about in the book is also learning how to help others navigate the emotional side of ambiguity, which I would refer to as the change curve, hearing about a change, learning about it, and having to adopt it, and trying to get a group of people to do that. And one of the things I heard you say, Shanae, that really had stuck with me was that when people hear about change, the first emotion they feel is fear. And when I understood that, it made it easier for me to shift my mindset and understand how to better approach them if I knew that what they were feeling was fear. So I want to hear your thoughts on helping others through the change curve and through the emotional side of navigating ambiguity. So the best analogy that I've heard, and I wish I could remember where this came from so I could give this individual credit. I don't remember where it came from. But if you imagine yourself sitting in a chair in a dark room, you can kind of hear noises, but you don't really know what's going on. You'd be a little bit scared, right? When the lights come on, you can see what's making the noises. You can take in information about the room. You know, you're exposed to all of the things that are there so that if the lights go out again, it's a little less scary. It's such a good analogy for how people experience change. It's the unknown. It's not knowing what's coming next, not knowing what questions to ask, not knowing what to expect that causes that fear in people. I like that the information that you can give them is like bringing light into the room. And you have to identify what information they need to feel like the light's coming on. And you do that through one-on-one discussions. I mean, is that a topic for your meet and greets? How do you uncover what information is most needed? Or is it just something you know, part of your methodology? 
I wonder if in terms of less of a strategy, it's more what are some things that we can do to help bring people along the journey that are more tools versus maybe a cohesive strategy. So I find some tools that can be whipped out of the kit bag are one, creating room for feedback, allowing people to respond and creating an environment safe for that response. Say, hey, outside of using crude, rude language, you can pretty much say whatever you want. This is a non-retributional environment in which you can provide feedback on. You can emotionally respond to what's being said. You can logically respond to what's being said, but we just want your feedback and allowing people to have a cathartic moment, if you will, and be heard. That's one toolkit that I find helps break the ice foundationally when people are really afraid of what's coming because they just don't know what's coming. Our mind has a tendency to go to worst case scenario, and some even have a proclivity to catastrophize, especially when they feel like there might be existential threat to their job or their value. Sometimes it's not even the physical job, it's the value that they provide to an organization. And we see that a lot more, I think, with the rise of AI and automation and robotics. There are a lot more people feeling and even moving to software packages in the business world that are leveraging standardized business processes versus customizations. You see a lot more folks that are wondering, what value do I provide when a CNC machine can craft this widget way better than I could? And I'm a skilled craftsman with 30 years of experience, or I was the sole individual to know how this process worked in our company. And now we're moving to an automated process flow that aligns with most of my industry. What value do I provide? I think sometimes it's just awareness. There's the cathartic release. There's the listening, allowing people to process. But then there's also, let's just build some awareness. Let's help people understand what's changing and what's not changing. And not that we want to soft round the corners or soft shoe it because there likely may be some changes to how people do their jobs. But instead of moving from, hey, we don't need you anymore. It's how can we take your skills, your talents, your abilities and better leverage that experience, that skill, and that talent to the betterment of the organization. And it may look differently from what you do today, but you're still valued, you're still appreciated. So there's the cathartic release, there's the driving of awareness to give people facts and acknowledging where we may not have all the answers. But I would say in the best possible situation, in the best possible companies, it's okay, hey, you're still a valued part of this organization. Let's figure out how we can co-create a role for you in this new world, rather than hey, this is a cost-cutting exercise and we're just planning on packing the bag. Those are three tools or recommendations I often provide, particularly in the context in which I'm working, to help mitigate that emotional concern. I was just going to add in recognizing that people are having actual physical, visceral reactions to change, you know, recognizing that that's happening physiologically within people as the fear sets in as well, being patient with those things. That's all for today's episode. To order your copy of the book, Refine and Grow, Lessons Learned on Navigating the Business World and Access Additional Resources, head out to our website at refineandgrow.com. And tune in next week for an all new episode. Thanks for listening.